0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sammasambuddhassa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sammasambuddhassa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Buddham Dhammang Sanghang I'd like to wish everyone a good afternoon and I'm very glad to be uh, back here again. The, um, The theme for the afternoon's talk is. Is this sound a bit adjustable? There is something wrong with my sound. <laughs> so, hello, one, two, three. Okay, that sounds better. Yes. So, uh, the, afterno- uh, the afternoon's theme is uh, There is something wrong with me. Also, implying there might be something wrong with you as well. But, uh, um so last week uh, those of you who were uh, were here uh, the theme was was that of forgiveness and um uh, during the course of that we touched a little bit upon a bit upon um looking at our own sense of, of self-criticism or negativity directed towards ourselves um and so this is a, in a sense uh, uh, a a uh, picking up on that particular part of the theme and exploring uh, some of that quality of feeling of imperfection in ourselves. Uh, Last week the the theme was more, in this respect, was more about how the thinking mind can take hold of of a a negative impression or a criticism and then take it and run with it and um, make it into a a, a problem of guilt or... um, a uh a severe negativity but um uh, the the, uh, the voice of the inner tyrant always uh, criticizing us and and complaining and and blaming and looking at everything that we do or think or say as being uh you know stupid or wrong or bad or embarrassing or just generally generally off um, but uh I thought uh, you know, for the theme of today, this is more to do with looking at the, the very essential feeling of, of i and me uh, of minus, the very sense of self, and uh, how that is addressed in the, the Buddhist teachings, because this is a, uh, a central theme of Buddha-dhamma, Buddhist practice, and one of the things that also makes it uh, somewhat unique in terms of the... Um, uh, approach to to spiritual training, spiritual practice. Now, when we f- we think of ourselves, um, sometimes it can be hard to pin down you know, who we who we uh, who we are. <laughs> and uh, years ago. When, um, before I became a monk, I, I used to, um, to wonder a lot, you know, which is, which is the real me? Which is the, the, the person that I can truly identify with? Or what's the, the characteristics that I, I really feel um, at home with? Because uh, when I was a, a teenager, I found that uh, I moved in about five different worlds, and uh, so there was uh, the uh, the realm of the family, and my sisters, my parents, my cousins, and there was the family world, and and uh, my role and personality in that. Youngest of three children, and uh, mum and dad, and the uh, you know, grandparents and so forth. And that's sort of me as part of the family and one of the horners. That's who I am. And then. Um, uh, when I was uh, uh, at school, in, in uh, secondary school, then there was uh, the friends that I had and uh, hanging out with this sort of gang of drunken public school rowdies <laughs> that was a very different identity than the sort of dutiful son <laughs> that I was with the, the family. There were, here were these sort of uh, raucous uh, youths running around Kent and London then, when I was at university, then with the, the uh, I was doing a degree at uh, London University, and there, there you are attending lectures and going to to tutorials with the psychology department, physiology department, and trying to be this sort of studious and intelligent, creative academic, you know, impressing people with your insights and your your knowledge and so forth. So there was this sort of, uh, intellectual person, and also uh, growing up, I. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time riding horses and uh, around the the horse uh, the horse and dog world, and so that uh, a lot of the the, f- the friends of the family down in uh, in Kent where I grew up this was very much the the hunt and shoot and fishing crowd, you know green Wellingtons and gin and tonic <laughs> gang, and uh, and so when I and but the, the interesting thing was that. Um, uh, when I was with the, 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 the horse and hound gin and tonic crowd, then I felt very much at home with them and I could play along with that world. And then when I was in the university, I could play along with that world. When I was with the family, I could, could do, do that. When I was out drinking with my old school friends, I would do that. And then uh, living in London uh, during those student years, I, oft- uh, I often found myself hanging out in these kind of anarchist hippie squats, in this is in the mid '70s uh, when there was a lot of that sort of thing was about, <laughs> and so uh, there I was with all these kind of uh, uh, countercultural hippie anarchists, and felt totally at home with that. So I began to think, well, hang on, <laughs> which one's the which one's the real me? Where 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 do I fit into this? Because I can match my conduct and my attitudes with each of these worlds to some degree or another, but but. Um, which one's the real one? And uh, the more I looked, it, it, like uh, uh, if you, any of you remember the uh, Winnie the Pooh, uh, there's, an enc- there's a time when um, Winnie the Pooh has lost Piglet and he's, ch- he's fo- trying to follow him around in the snow. And there's this beautiful expression where, where it says, um, the more Pooh looked, the more that Piglet wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> he's following his footsteps in the snow, if I remember. So it was that kind of experience, As the more that I looked for the, the real me, the, the more I couldn't pin it down on anything, the more, in a, in a way, I wasn't there. So this was, was, at the time, because I didn't have any understanding or knowledge of Buddhism at all, let alone uh, any kind of um, experience of meditation, this was very distressing, because in a way, the harder I looked, the less there was anything real there. So at that time, that was very unsettling and, and uh, disorienting. Um, then, uh, uh, and you know, it led to uh, some kind of major psychological crises during that time. Because I, I thought, well, I don't really exist. There really isn't anything here. Ah! <laughs> this is a disaster. There's, there's no real me. This is an identity crisis. And I thought I was going crazy. So a few years later, after I'd encountered Buddhism and started hearing about the teachings on anatta and selflessness and uh, uh, learning a little bit about Buddhist meditation and Buddhist perspective on things, then I realize, oh, no, that's great. (laughs) Rather than this being a psychological problem, this is actually a beneficial result of meditation, is that same insight into this um, lack of solidity or the lack of definable identity. Um, And that uh, the uh, the teachings point directly to that. And that uh, one of the things that's wrong with me is that we take ourselves too seriously. We take the me, the I, the mine to be an absolute reality, and just as my experience as a, as a confused teenager, uh, you start to open it up, and then the more you look, the more there isn't really anybody there, there isn't any solid person there, and uh, rather than thinking of this as a, a weakness, the Buddha says, look, isn't this how it is? And that, uh, so the one of the things, one of the problems, what is wrong with, with me, and, that, and when we Put this title t- together for the talk. Notice that there was a inverted comma, inverted commas around the me. <laughs> there is something wrong with me, <laughs> uh, meaning that the the way that we handle that feeling of inus and minus and minus that's that's the issue. That's the key point. The central teaching that uh, that the Buddha gave on this, which was very very early on in his, his teaching career what is often known as the second discourse is called the Anatta Lakana Sutta the discourse on the characteristic of not self and traditionally this was given to the the group of the Buddha's five friends, five companions um, in the deer park in Varanasi not that long after the enlightenment after the enlightenment of Bodhgaya he walked to Varanasi and then joined up together with his uh, five former companions and then Initially he would given them the teaching on the middle way and the Four Noble Truths, uh, the Dhamma Chakra, Sutta, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, was the first teaching. And during that teaching, uh, only one of the five actually understood what he was saying. Only Kundanya uh, became a stream-enterer, uh, entered the, the initial stages of the path. None of the other four uh, had any uh, significant or, or life-changing insight at that time. But it was during the second discourse, what's known as the Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on not-self, that actually all five of them became fully enlightened. So in a way, the, um, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths in the middle way was sort of preparing the ground, and then the uh, awakening of the, the liberating insight came with this teaching on on, uh, uh, on not-self. And so this is one of the, the suttas that we recite in our, our monasteries, um, one of the, these first three sermons that we often uh, uh, recite in Pali and also um, uh, over the years that uh, Lumpur Sumato would, would encourage uh, a lot of reflection on because there's some very key teachings in there and also the morning chanting that we do contains a lot of the same teachings that are embodied in the Anattalakana Sutta. And uh, the the basic framework of that teaching is around investigating the, the the nature of body and mind. And in this instance the Buddha divides it into, into five convenient chunks, the five khandhas, or the five aggregates, or the five groups. Uh, and these are, the first one is rupa, which means the body of material form, and then the other four, that's, that's the, the physical group, or the physical kanda. and the other four are the mental ones, that's feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, vedana, sanya, sankara, Vijnana. Um, so, this is a rough way of, of chunking body and mind, nama and Rupa, together and uh, and what he, he does is that the Buddha goes through this analytical process with his 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 friends, and uh, he starts off by saying, um, "Is form is material form? is the body permanent or impermanent?" and they say well it 's impermanent, the body changes all the time." So is that which is, is that is impermanent and changing can it be can that be perfectly satisfactory? Is that dukkha or sukha is that satisfactory or unsatisfactory well any, anything that changes can't possibly be pleasing to us all of the time, so therefore it would be dukkha or unsatisfactory it's not something that can be permanently and absolutely pleasing so yeah uh, he say it's dukkha and then and then he Took the analysis to, to its completion. Okay, that which is impermanent, unsatisfactory, can it be said of that? Uh, can it truly be said of that? This is, uh, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself. Etang mama, eso hamasmi, eso me ata. Can it be said truly that that's the, um, uh, who and what we are? And then the answer that they give is no, it can't. Because the implication is that if something is atta, something is our true self, it will be um, satisfactory, permanent, <laughs> and uh, and ple- it will be, be be pleasing. It will be um, an abiding and uh, uh, satisfying, uh, invulnerable quality. So uh, then he goes through each of the other uh, aspects of of the, uh, of the five khandas, the the, uh, the body and mind, through feeling. Perception, mental formations, that means emotions, thoughts, ideas, uh, motivations and so forth, memories, all those uh, aspects of uh, the mental world. And consciousness itself, the very faculty of cognizing, of knowing. Uh, and he says, is this, can, can it be said of this, is it changing, is it not changing? Is it satisfactory, is it unsatisfactory? Okay, that which is changing, that which is unsatisfactory, can you say of this, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself, to which they reply, no, (laughs) no he tang bante. So that, so he he leads them through, through their own uh, investigation, their own experience, to to this conclusion of um, uh, recognizing that no, you can't say any aspect of the the body and mind is a true individual permanent self. So rather than trying to define what a true self is, capital S, or or, R, Our uh, our kind of real, real identity. He instead uh, points to letting go of what we're not, because then he says. um, So therefore, uh, the wise noble disciple recognizes that um, uh, the 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 realm of material form, inside outside, coarse or fine, pure or impure, far or near. Uh, Whatever kind of material form, whatever kind of body, whether it's a a material object, a possession, or uh, another person, or a mountain, or our own body, it cannot be said of that, this is me, this is mine, this is what I, uh, this is uh, myself, this belongs to me. It can't be said uh, of that. So similarly, a feeling, a perception, mental formations, and even consciousness, consciousness. it can't be said of that. Therefore, the wise, noble disciple, let's go, and does not create an identification with those uh, those five groups, the, the, those aspects of, of body and mind. So, rather than trying to define a, a true self or even define an ultimate reality, he says, "Let go of what you uh, of, of the habit of identifying with what you're not, and then what's real will become apparent." <laughs> and that uh, at the end of that discourse, then all, as I said, all five of them became fully enlightened. This is a very powerful teaching, and something that bears a lot of investigation. Um, it's also interesting that those three aspects—the uh, the, uh, the qualities of mindness, etang uh, mama—is uh, and the quality of is related to desire, to, to craving. Then, uh, so the feeling of ownership is related to craving. The feeling of of, uh, of, of uh, I am is a kind of conceit. And then the feeling of, of myself is, is a, in a way, a coarser kind of view of identification with the body and the personality. So these are called the gaha, or the papancha dhammas. So these are uh, uh, tanha, mana, and ditti, craving, conceit, and views. So the craving is ba- based around this uh, quality of feeling of mindness, and the Pali word for mine is mama. So the primordial owning is of the the baby, is <laughs> <It's> mama. <laughs> like that is mine. That's my mother. I don't think it's an entirely a coincidence that there is that basic relationship uh, that we form, and that the word there in Pali of for mindness is mama. That is mine. Any of us who ever been. Around babies and know <laughs> how they relate to the mother. There's a very distinct sense of mine. Of mine. That's my safety, my security, my lunch. <laughs> so these uh, these uh, then are called the gaha, which means that the obsessions or the papancha dhammas, the causes of mental proliferation, and the the uh, um, the way that the mind takes hold of those particular perceptions. It's really uh, that that is important to look at in this respect of how we make this error of taking those feelings of I and me and mine to be an absolute reality. And so particularly the process of insight meditation is aimed at exploring how do we create that feeling of I and me and mine and how does that become solidified? Uh, How do we create that problem, that thing that is wrong with the me-ness? Because on on their own there's no problem. It's just a feeling that arises and passes away. But it's because of the clinging, the grasping hold of them, the way the mind obsesses on them, becomes a gaha. Um, that's, the, that's the issue. That's where it becomes problematic. Now this, uh, the word of, 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 um, that the Buddha used to, to describe that kind of grasping uh, is manyati, and it means to conceive and uh, in uh, in english to to conceive just means to form a thought or to bring something into being but in um, in buddhist psychology it particularly relates to the creation of the i am feeling and making that into the, uh, holding that as if it was an ultimate reality it's like making the the i am into an ultimate truth so just as in Western psychology, we have the ego. The ego is just a Latin word for I. But we make the, that I feeling into me, right? <laughs> and a lot of psychology is based around having a, a good, solid ego. You know, even Buddhist psychologists will tell you, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. <laughs> but They, they love, to, have, they love to, to build upon the idea, you've got to have a good, solid, wholesome, healthy ego, before you try and let go of it, and there there is some basis to that, but um oftentimes it's because of trying to 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 create and hold on to a firm separate independent sense of i that um that we don't we are creating the causes of alienation and discontent and uh, incompletion, although we don't realize it. We're trying to make a a firm and solid feeling of of self. We're trying to make ourselves feel secure. But in that very effort to establish a firm and solid ego, we're actually strengthening the causes of alienation and and dukkha of suffering. Now the um, the Buddha outlined... Uh, se- several different kinds of of um, conceit, and in English we tend to think of the word conceit as meaning being inflated. Like someone is conceited, it means like I'm I'm better than everybody else, right? That's what we think of being conceited as someone who's proud or thinks a lot of themselves. But in in um, uh, Buddhist psychology, uh, being uh, conceited it has many different dimensions. So. Uh, This is a passage from the Sangyuta Nikaya where uh, the Buddha says, One who conceives I am equal, better or worse, might on that account engage in disputes. But one not shaken in these three discriminations does does not think I am equal or better. The equality conceit, the inferiority conceit, and the superiority conceit, that's like thinking you're the same as, thinking you're worse than, or thinking you're better, this threefold conceit should be overcome That one who has overcome this threefold conceit through the full penetration of conceit is said to have put an end to suffering. Those Samanas and Brahmins who, relying on the impermanent, unsatisfying, and transitory nature of material form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, conceive that I am better, or I am equal, or I am worse, all these imagine thus through not understanding reality. So it's a more expansive uh, version of conceit, and if you want to get really thorough, there's what's called the nine types of conceit that um, <laughs> that go: uh, if you're superior and you think I'm superior; if you're superior and you think I'm the same as; if you're superior and you think I'm worse than; if you're equal and you think I'm better than; if you're equal and you think I'm equal; if you're equal and you think I'm worse than; or if you're inferior and you think I'm superior. If you're inferior and you think I'm equal to, and if you're inferior and you think I'm inferior, all of those are conceit. <laughs> so nine types. So any anything that's got I am on it, it's wrong. <laughs> so this is a really, uh, in a way, a helpful way of outlining because you might think, well, I'm just being realistic. You know, I am better than others. You know? <laughs> like even that Ajahn Chah said, said that he. Uh, well, I used to get so critical of all the other monks in the monastery, I think, you know, I can chant better than them, I can sit better than them, I can give better Dhamma talks, you know, you know, I, you know it's, I keep the Vinaya more strictly than everybody else, I am better than them. It was, a tr- it was true. But, they, but he could see that holding on to that and making that a cause to criticize and blame and alienate himself from others was only causing more suffering. So it's not about having a realistic assessment of how things are. Let alone being deluded, like thinking that you're better than when you're really equal to or worse than. But it's every kind of conceiving, all the different kinds of manyati. So, in this uh, passage from the, the Sutta number 140 in the Majima, the Buddha says Bhikkhu, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. Conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a tumour, conceiving is a barb. By overcoming all conceiving's bhikkhu one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They're not shaken and they are not agitated, for there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, why should they be agitated? So a lot of the, these teachings on in, uh, the development of insight meditation are about uh, identifying the, those qualities, those habits of, of conceiving and um, to, uh, to recognize that and to learn how to, to not conceive ourselves. And it, this is very difficult to do <laughs> because the, the world and our conditioning continually stokes that feeling of i am we have a name we have a a a, a life story we've got a a cv we've got a family that keeps addressing us and and we have a social security number we have bank account numbers email addresses (laughs) all of these i ams to keep re reaffirming yeah who we are in in different ways um but uh what is most useful is to recognize the, the limited nature of that and how we can just hang on to those, those identities and, uh, in a way, try to make a refuge of them, even when they're things that are, 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 are painful to us, even if they're things that are, are um, a kind of um, uh, an uncomfortable identity, still we'll hang on to them. I, the, the, uh, the great spiritual teacher Gurdjieff uh, was one of the, the things that he said that I, I remember um, being uh, introduced to a, a few years ago was um, people, he said that people will hang on to, um, to their suffering until death. You can take away anything from people except for their suffering. They'll hang on to that until death. <laughs> but we want to at least grip on to that. And uh, I was also reminded of a, um, of, uh, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I think Calvin and Hobbes made it over to England, right? Yes? <laughs> and uh, where, where uh, Calvin um, is this, this, uh, this inspired little boy. It's, it's also, I think, uh, Calvin and Hobbes is a cartoon written by a, a philosophy graduate. It's like, what do you do when you, you get a university degree in philosophy? So you write cartoon strips. <laughs> How to make money out of philosophy. <laughs> and so Calvin says, um, nothing I do is my fault. Uh, my family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Yeah. Therefore, I'm not self-actualized. <laughs> I'm the, the disease product of toxic codependency. I need, I need wellness. Uh, and I, uh, I need health and wellness and, uh, and personal security before I'll take responsibility for any of my actions. <laughs> to which his partner, the tiger, Hobbes, says, I think one of us needs to stick his head into a bucket of ice water. And Calvin's last word is, I love the culture of victimhood. <laughs> so, you know, in a way, sometimes in the cartoons we can find little home truths that <laughs> that uh, reveal a lot about ourselves. So whether we have a, a negative self-view or we have a, a problem, an unrequitable romance, an unforgivable uh, uh, feeling of, of resentment uh, or a feeling of... of uh, Wrong that we've done ourselves, like I was talking about last week in terms of, of forgiveness, we can still hang on to that because at least that's a, a devil that we know. That's the I am that we know. And, and far better to have a, a big problem that I can't get rid of than to, have, to be faced with undefined being. Right? It's far more challenging to, to at least be a, be a criminal, <laughs> to be a, a failure, than to not be able to define who and what we are. Because that quality of of undefinedness is deeply threatening to the ego, but it's it's also very liberating to the heart. Now, one of the the issues that uh, um, that is central to this is the feeling of, of of wanting to be free. We desire freedom very powerfully, don't we? we? We have this feeling of I'm hemmed in by life. I'm hemmed in by my, uh, my body, my personality, my hang-ups, I'm hemmed in by my lack of income, by my um, you know, difficult living situation. If only I didn't have all this stuff, these limitations, then I'd be free. How can I be free? If only I could calm my mind, if only I could stop the mental chatter, if only I didn't have to live with these difficult family members. <laughs> if only, if only, if only, then I would be free. And so whether it's uh, rearranging our external world or working hard to rearrange our internal world, we can do, be doing that a lot on the basis of I want to to, to be free. And the the, the irony uh, of this is that the more you look at this issue and that you use the, particularly the uh, me, uh, insight meditation to explore this feeling of I am, that these, these conceits, is that you, you suddenly... Becomes apparent that I can never be free. You, as a person, can never be free. Because the person is the prison. The I is the is like the the prison bars. I, I, to think of it as a, you know I I I I I I I I. I. <laughs> that's the, uh, that's what hems. That's what hems the heart in, and so that the. The the yearning for me to be free is uh, it's understandable and it's poignant enough, but it's deeply ironic because it, the it's the the person is the prison, and so that, that it's that very I feeling that's creating the limitation, although we don't we don't realize that most of the time. Now the the way the way that we often relate to that um, uh, the feeling of I is we, we take hold of the, of the Buddha's teaching on, on not-self and um, we say, oh, well, the Buddha said there is no self. You know, so uh, I don't really exist, so that's fine. <laughs> right? <laughs> and we, we take the teaching on anatta and say, well, this is, the Buddha said there is no self. But that's, uh, some of you might be surprised to hear that's a misquotation. Of the teaching, and you can't actually find anywhere in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says there is no self. And uh, in the the one instance when he is uh, confronted with uh, this question, um, this is when he is uh, approached by a a, uh, uh, a monk called Vachagota. So one of these very interesting encounters. So this is. Um, Vachagota, who was a, one of these uh, perennial inquirers, a wanderer who would come and ask the Buddha questions, and eventually he became an Arahant, but uh, had a lot of encounters and, <laughs> and uh, interesting dialogues before the full enlightenment came. So one day, the, the wanderer Vachagota approached the Blessed One and said to him, How is it, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then the wonder of Achagota rose from his seat and departed. Then, not long after the wonder of Achagota had left, the Venerable Ananda, who's always trying to make everything right, <laughs> 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 he was always worrying about people being looked after properly, um, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Why is it, Venerable Sir, that when the Blessed One was questioned by the wonder of Achagota, he did not answer? And the Buddha replies very significantly If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Achyagota, Is there a self? I had answered, There is a self. This would have been siding with those Samanas and Brahmins who are eternalists. And if, when I was asked by him, Is there no self? I had answered, There is no self. This would have been siding with those Samanas and Brahmins who are annihilationists. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Achyagota, Is there a self? I'd answered, There is a self. Would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are not self? No, Venerable Sir. And if when I was asked by him, is there no self? I had answered, there is no self. The wonder of Achyagota, already confused, would have fallen even into greater confusion, thinking, hmm, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. <laughs> like I had a self and I came here, now, <laughs> now I'm told I haven't got one. So... That's the only instance in the canon where the Buddha is asked that straight out and he remains silent. So uh, there are plenty of teachings on Anatta, but uh, what, the, what this is pointing to is that Anatta is more t- to do with that analytical method that he's using in relationship to exploring our uh, relationship uh, to the, uh, the realm of form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. It's it's a way of exploring that, those aspects of mind and body and saying, is this who and what I am? Is this perception? Is this the sound of this voice, is this mine? Does this have an owner? What is it that does the owning? Who is that? What is that? Does this thought have an owner? Is this really and completely who and what I am? Is this body uh, in its changing nature? Is this me? Is this mine? Is this what I am? Is this myself? So it's a, an ex- a way of exploring and looking... Uh, to examine the feeling of selfhood rather than a philosophical position to grasp and say uh, there is no self. Does, does that make a, is that clear? Does that make a, a, does that, can you see that's a different approach? These are different qualities. So there's a very wonderful essay which is also quoted in this, this book. This is by the this is our collection called The Island, the Buddhist, about uh, the Buddha's teachings on Nibbana. There's an essay by uh, Ajahn Tanisaro here that's called No Self or Not Self. And I won't read the whole thing out, but he explains that this issue in very, very uh, clear and helpful detail. So that um, when we are looking at this feeling of self, um, what we're, looking, we're not trying to take a, a position of saying, well, there is no self, uh, you know, there, there really is no self, and if I could just see that I don't exist, then I would be free. <laughs> that's not it at all. Um, because to believe that we have no self, uh, as the Buddha says, is, is siding with the annihilationists. And uh, as he points out, the, um, this is another teaching, he says, These good summoners and Brahmins who describe the annihilation, the destruction and extermination of an existing being at death through fear of personality and disgust with personality keep running and circling around that same personality, Just as a dog bound by a leash tied to a firm post or pillar keeps on running and circling around that same post or pillar, so too these good summoners and Brahmins, through fear of personality and disgust with personality, keep running and circling around that same personality. Now all that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, seeing the escape from it all, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. Now, one of the uh, the passages that I'm most fond of um, comes from some verses that the Buddha uh, pronounced shortly after his enlightenment. And um, this is about his exploration of his his own insight that he had awakened to with his enlightenment, and this strange, mysterious, subtle pathway between being and non-being. So, you know, if you if you reflect on Hamlet's famous soliloquy, "To be or not to be," is that the question? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> because, uh, in terms of, of, of uh, the Buddhist approach, is to be or not to be, that is not the question. So, the answer is no, that is not the question. <laughs> but uh, but uh, rather, this mysterious middle way that is neither adhering to the quality of being, of eternalism, or of non-being, annihilationism. We're not trying to, to establish a a self that is permanent and separate and secure and happy, or to, to believe that there is no self and there never was, um, but rather the mysterious middle way. And he expresses this in this wonderful passage from the Udana. He says, so this was just like a, a, a spontaneous utterance shortly after the Enlightenment. He said, Whatever summoners or brahmins have described liberation from being to come about through love of being, none, I say, are liberated from being. And whatever summoners or brahmins have described escape from being to come about through love of non-being, none, I say, have escaped from being. Through attachment to existence, suffering is. With all clinging exhausted, suffering is no more. Whatever states of being there are, like any kind of conceiving, Any kind of I am of any kind, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain haunted, and subject to change. One who sees this as it is thus abandons craving for existence without relishing non existence. That's really worthy of reflection, isn't it? To abandon craving for existence, so letting go of that urge to be for the I am, but without relishing. Non existence without just switching off, without the, uh, the, the relishing of, of non being, of the idea of, of no self. Then he finishes by saying, The remainderless fading, cessation, nibbana, comes with the utter ending of all craving. Now you might feel he's not really giving us a lot to hang on to there. <laughs> um, but it's, this is a really important area of the teaching to explore, particularly if you're interested in insight meditation, and looking at the, how it can be, that the, the focusing on the feeling of I and me and mine, how that continually exacerbates uh, and promotes the feelings of alienation and insecurity and unhappiness, loneliness. Um, and this is really, uh, so it, it can seem a little bit abstruse or obscure, but it's, it's really helpful to look at how the mind lurches on the one hand to to wanting to be something, to be identified with your body, your personality, your achievements, you know, something, or just wants to switch off. Well, most of us wouldn't wake up in the morning and thinking, am I dedicated to being or non-being? You know, that's not really the way we begin our day, is it? But all of us in in a similar, in a a different way, uh, are similarly drawn to when something affirms us, something that says, you know, uh, good to see you wow you're, you're looking great you're, you're looking great today or or um something uh affirms us or makes us pleased something uh excites us then we love that don't we when someone says wow good to see you, you go, <laughs> we feel a charge i think wow you yeah, know you're looking you're looking fine today <laughs> or if if we're feeling miserable someone sort of looks at you and says hello Oh, oh you here? Oh, okay. <laughs> then something or something uh, uh, is painful, we get our exam results through the post, and you think, oh, oh no, got to do it all over again. Yeah. Or that, uh, you know, the tax returns come back, oh no, oh man, I've got to do it all over again. Whatever it might be, you know, whether it's passing exams or paying taxes or, you know. Or uh, you want to go to live in a different monastery and you get a, a very long understanding letter that says no. <laughs> oh. Then what happens is the urge for, for non-being, like I want to switch off, I want to not feel, I want to just disappear, I, I've had enough of this, just how can I get numb, <laughs> Right? Whether you're in a lay life or a monastic life, we all have that kind of incl- can have that kind of inclination when things are painful or difficult or challenging. to just want to switch off and not feel. This is what we can call annihilationism, the desire to not be. So looking at these, this strange middle way between these can be, can be very, very helpful. And there's these um, uh, wonderful teachings that the Buddha gave on this. And this is a passage from the Itivuttaka. He says... Bhikkhus, held by two kinds of views, some devas and human beings hold back and some overreach. Only those with vision see. And how, bhikkhus, do some hold back? Some devas and humans enjoy being, delight in being, are satisfied with being. When the Dhamma is taught to them for the cessation of being, their minds do not enter into it or acquire confidence in it, or settle upon it or become resolved upon it. Thus, bhikkhus, do some hold back. And how do some overreach? Now some are troubled, ashamed and disgusted by this very same quality of being and they rejoice in the idea of non-being asserting Good sirs, when the body perishes at death this self is annihilated and destroyed and does not exist anymore This is true peace This is excellent This is reality The few Buddhist teachers who <laughs> uh, speak that way as well Thus bhikkhus do some overreach How bhikkhus do those with vision see? Herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Having seen it thus, one practices the course for turning away, for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. Thus bhikkhus to those with vision see. So rather than grasping hold of the feeling of I am, or wanting to just switch off and not be, um, what he points to is uh, this quality of vision, that having uh, seen that which is arising, oh, this is the... The, th- the thrill of being, someone uh, uh, is smiling at me, someone is, uh, is praising me, this is um, a, a sweet day, everything is good, this is the, the relishing of being. It feels like this, sweet feeling. And then the, uh, then watching it fade away, this is the, the ending of that, this, this is now the autumn, the fading, the dissolution. That which came to be has this cooling, this, this, uh, this ending, this dissolution, this bitterness to it. Oh, this is part of the cycle. Uh, This is also uh, incorporated in the the thrill of being, there's the the dissolution, the cooling of non-being, of of breaking up. These are all part of the same cycle. Nothing is lost. And so that um, those with vision are taking the the position not of grasping the dissolution or grasping the arising, not grasping spring or grasping winter, but uh, taking the position of knowing, of watching, the the place of, of vision. And that's what uh, insight practice is really uh, particularly aimed at. Uh, one of the um, most helpful practices in this respect um, is a, a teaching that uh, Lumpur Sumedho gave years and years ago. I think uh, a few of us were around. I think Ajahn Sundra was, was there. <laughs> a few of us old-timers, we were there back in 1981 or even earlier Maybe back in the mists of time at Chithurst um, and uh, we were um, I think it was during the, one of the very first winter retreats that we had there in the ramshackle old crumbling um, dry rot filled Victorian house as it was then and it's this very plush mansion nowadays <laughs> but it was a kind of rotting Dickensian or more kind of Egg-Allen-Poe-ish <laughs> sort of rot filled um, uh, Victorian, uh, sort of gothic uh, pile in those days. So we all gathered together in the shrine room and, and Lumpur Sumedho was giving his teachings. And uh, he, uh, First of all, he was teaching about the meditation on the, on the inner sound, on uh, what's called nada yoga, or listening to the, the inner sound and learning to use that as a meditation object. And then after a while of, of teaching that, then he introduced this, uh, this, this kind of questioning using uh, the, uh, the deliberate bringing in of a doubt or asking a, an impossible question to help uh, keep the mind alert and open and um, attentive to the present moment and a way of cutting through conceptual thought. And the, the question that he suggested using was the question, who am I? And uh, this was a a method that he'd learned from reading uh, the Dharma teachings of Venerable Master Xu Yun, who was an ancient uh, Chinese meditation master. Um, And there was a number of talks from uh, a retreat that he gave in Shanghai when he was 114. (laughs) 114 years old, he was still leading retreats. So he didn't actually have the word retirement in his dictionary. (laughs) uh, But there was a, a man called Charles Luke a chinese man from hong kong who was on those retreats and he recorded the um helped to record the teachings and then translate them into english and uh, these were put into a, a series of books called chan and zen training and when lumpur was in the peace corps in uh, in borneo back in the in the early 60s and uh, then living in thailand he had copies of these charles Luke books and during that time he used the advice from the from this retreat the the dharma teachings from this Retreat of Master Shu Yun as his meditation method, and one of the things that he, ex- he he described was this meditation on using questions, or what's called a, a huato, which literally means a um, the the um, a head word is uh, I think how it translates from the Chinese. The huato or, or um, kung an is the the Chinese word for the question, which means something like a public record or koan in Japanese. Is, it's known. But uh, huato literally means a head word. And so that you, he, what he describes is you, you're deliberately asking a question when the mind is quite focused and still. You bring in a question like, who am I? And it's not just repeating the words like a mantra. That's not the point of it. It's a, it needs to be a genuine questioning. And so when, you ask the que- when, you, when the mind is quite still and focused, when you bring in the word, who am I? bring that question in, then it, uh, in a way it reveals the presumptions that, uh, that, that there is a me here, <laughs> that there is a doer, an experiencer, and that for a moment it interrupts that self-creating habit. And that's the purpose of it. So, so that uh, Master Xu Yun points out in these, these teachings um, that it's not just a matter of repeating the words, but you need to rouse the question. There needs to be a genuine element of doubt raised because it's that doubt that interrupts the self-creating habit. Because in that moment, when you ask the question, who am I, then there's a a kind of gap that opens up. There's a a hesitation in the self-creating habit. And for a moment, the the me who's the meditator, the me who's the experiencer, trips over its own feet, as it were. And there's a moment, there's a, a, a gap, where there's clarity, there's wakefulness, and no sense of self. So during that retreat uh, at Chithurst back in, the, in, I think it was 81, might have been 1980, neither Ajahn Sunder or I can remember, <laughs> somewhere back there, 30 years ago-ish, um, he introduced this practice. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, wow, this is great, wonderful, marvelous. And, but I tended to relate to it then more as just a way of helping to clear the mind of the incessant babble of thinking <laughs> for a few moments. And it didn't really come to life for me as a practice until some years later because I'd only been in the monastery a couple of years at that time. I I was um, uh, really uh, mostly experiencing, as I said, like an incessant babble of thinking and just the the concept uh, that my mind could ever stop thinking more than about four thoughts at once was like a vague dream off in the distance. (laughs) If I could just cut down to... One or two thoughts at a time, it would be an improvement. But as I spent time in the monastery uh, and then did more and more meditation practice, uh, after about five or six years, I found that my mind really had begun to calm down quite a lot. So uh, so, uh, some years later, I was living up in Harnam Monastery in Northumberland. And that time... It, we had a winter retreat, and uh, there was only about three or four monks and one, one or two Anagarikas living in the monastery. It was a very small community, just four or five people. And it was uh, this time of, of incredible stillness and quiet. There was about three feet of snow outside and hardly any visitors, and it's a very uh, strong routine of meditation practice. And I was probably doing about you know, 15 or 18 hours a day of, of formal practice during that time. So after about a month of this, my mind started to get really, really quiet. And up until then, the moments where my mind had stopped thinking um, had been pretty isolated. (laughs) You see a few minutes here, a few minutes there. And then on this retreat, with so much time for formal practice and things so quiet and so still in this cold, grey, quiet world outside, things got really, really quiet inside. And I found, after about a month, that uh, I could think if I wanted to think and not think if I didn't want to think. And I remember remember it, it occurred to me, Wow, this is great! I can just sit here and not think after all these years, six or seven years of hard slogging away, and wow, at last, no thought, this is great. <sighs> this feeling of relief, like you know when the when the fridge switches off or the traffic finally stops on the outside, and you, oh, this is great Then after about three days of of this, I began to feel. We're very quiet here. (laughs) Right. No thinking. So, this is it? (laughs) This is the whole thing? You know, you just stop thinking, and this is supposed to be Nibbana? This is kind of boring. And then as the, as the days and weeks went by, it got more and more boring until I, I got to feel like I was just sitting in this grey box. And I thought, this is, this is kind of strange because I, you know, I'm doing all the right things. You know, there's, I look around, look at the hindrances. There's no lust, no restlessness, no dullness. My mind is wide, wide awake. Uh, I'm not, I've not got any doubt. Um, What's what's, all the hindrances are absent? My mind's not thinking. Why is this so miserable? (laughs) The Buddha couldn't have built a whole world religion around this. (laughs) I mean, people, human beings are not so stupid. They cannot be so easily conned that for two and a half thousand years, this is the best that we could do. There's no way that this can be the, the goal of spiritual life. So, I'm I'm missing something. I need more light. I need more life. I need joy. Yes. (laughs) So I thought, well, let's get some meta in here and and kind of brighten things up. And so I tried to arouse this feeling of loving kindness. And it was rather like going around with a a spray can of pink paint, sort of covering everything with pink. And that didn't work. (laughs) It was just like pink grayness, pink coated, sort of sugar coated grayness. I thought, well, that's, this is pretty pretty dreadful, just sort of made like, like a bitter taste with, with sweetness on top of it. And I thought, well, this is really, really disappointing. So maybe it's not something that I'm missing. Maybe there's something that's clogging up the works. Maybe there's something that's in the way. What could it be? Because there's, there's no lust, there's no fear, there's no aversion, there's no restlessness, there's no dullness. What What's here that's clogging up the works? What, what is it that's in the way? And suddenly, like the, the proverbial light bulb, ping! oh, I am. <laughs> it's me. There's me, the meditator. There's me, the doer. Me, the, the one who's practicing. Of course. And then I suddenly remembered this practice of the investigation of who am I that, that uh, Lumpur Sumedho had taught uh, all those years before, about five years before, and I hadn't really used that much since that time. So I, I started to use that and I would just use the question, who am I? And because the mind was quite calm and focused, then it was just like the camera being turned back onto the photographer. It's like, oh, nobody here. <laughs> but Don't look. It's and it was so revealing that, oh, it's me. That's this, this I, me, my feeling, me, the doer, me, the experiencer, me, the owner of this moment. And so just as Master Xu Yun describes, it's not just a matter of repeating the question, but often you, can, you have to move it around a bit. So you ask, well, who is it that's having this insight? Who is it that's uh, letting go of self? Who is it that this belongs to? What is it that knows this? And so you're using the questioning to open up that, uh, that quality of spacious awareness. You're not trying to find an answer. You're deliberately not looking for a verbal answer to the question. But what you're looking for is that to, the, the, the head word, the space, what he says is the unborn or the unconditioned, the space uh, that appears after the question before an answer appears, or even the space before you pose the question. <laughs> that uh, unborn, uh, unoriginated, uh, open, aware quality and that, uh, as I started to do this this practice and really apply that, the experience was was like the the walls of my gray box just sort of flopped open, and because it 'd been there for a, you know, a good month by that time, and that it was like the, the the walls of the gray box just sort of flopped open suddenly, it was like being out in the sunlight, and there was this well, like the world was full of color, and there was like fields of flowers all around, even though it was still winter in northumberland <laughs> but the the internal feeling was freshness and light and, and color and space and liveness ah that was it <laughs> so this is an extraordinarily useful uh, practice and uh, in respect to to the the theme for the day it's uh, it's pointing to in a way there's nothing wrong with me as long as we don't take it we don't take me seriously <laughs> as long as we recognize oh this is just a the ego, the sense of self, is just a convenient structure to help us get through a day, so that we can fill in the form of, you know, year of birth, <laughs> social security number, address. You know, when you when you need to fill in a form, or you get stopped for speeding, you know, when the, when you get pulled over on the motorway, you don't say to the policeman, "I don't exist," or <laughs> well, "There is no self, officer." Uh if you wanted a trip to the cells, you'll try that. But you say, Oh no, no, my name is Amaru Bhikkhu, born September second, nineteen fifty six, You can use those structures and forms but without confusion. Just as the Buddha said, when someone said, What do you, you you give all these teachings about not self, but you use personal pronouns. You say he and she and they you know, what's all this about not self if you're talking about all these supposed people? And the Buddha said Yes, I use the conventions of ordinary speech i, I use personal pronouns, but I use them without confu- confusion simply in order to communicate <laughs> so we, we we look at the self and the uh, and the feelings of self in the same way that that what's wrong with me is that we uh we, th- that is grasped by the the habits of ignorance, and that uh as Lung por is very very fond of saying. Uh, we, we As long as we can change the paradigm, then everything is fine. Because the paradigm we tend to go with is me and my problems. Here's me and my problems. And if we shift the paradigm to there's the Buddha mind seeing the way things are, there's the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. You've heard him say that before, I'm sure, a few times. Not me and my problems, but the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. And that's not just some sort of vague, remote, metaphysical statement, that's Just that's what happens when when there's a letting go in the heart and we let it shift from being me, uh, owning these thoughts, owning this moment, owning this body and this personality, to just the arising and passing away of the natural order. That's uh, the Buddha mind, the wise, awake mind, seeing the way things are. And I see that the way things are is that Lada is busy getting everything on the counter with her team of elves The clock is at right angles between the the 12 and the 3, so it's time to bring this to a close and offer these thoughts for reflection. So we'll have a bit of a break now, and uh, tea is on offer, and uh, we can come back together for questions and discussion, some Dhamma dialogue in about 20 minutes.